again, we live in a day and age when people spend more time preparing for a wedding than a marriage, but previous generations spent more time preparing for a marriage than for a wedding. This became very clear to me, or a story that illustrates this, July 29th, 1981. As a young teenager, I got up early one Saturday morning there in Dallas, Georgia, to watch the TV as Prince Charles married Lady Diana Spencer. So here I was watching this royal wedding, the wedding of the century there on TV. And little did I know that 750, other, 750 million other people around the world were tuning in as we were watching this wedding. And it was indeed quite a wedding. They had three choirs and three orchestras. What do you think about that, Brother Mark, right? And so they had an extravagant wedding. It was at St. Paul's Cathedral and none other than the Archbishop of Canterbury officiated the wedding. Her wedding ring, her wedding ring had 14 solitaire diamonds surrounding a 12-carat uh, Cylon uh, uh, diamond. It was beautiful. It was of extravagance. Her wedding train on her, or excuse me, the train on her bridal ground 25 feet long. It was the longest train on a bridal gown in royal history. 30,000 pounds is what her wedding ring cost back in 1981. I don't know what that would be today. After their wedding, they spent, an, among other things on their honeymoon, an 11-day cruise around the Mediterranean on the royal yacht. That sounds pretty awesome. Then they settled down to married life. They had the wedding of the century. And 11 years later, it ended in separation in 1992 and then finally in divorce in 1996. Played out on the front of the tabloid magazines as you're checking out at the, the grocery store. That royal wedding, which began with the wedding of the century, ended much like many of its not-so-royal counterparts. Many people in our day and age are just like this royal couple. They spend an extravagant amount of time focusing on the wedding ceremony and not enough time focusing on a marriage. Let me clarify two terms for you. A marriage is a covenant between a man and a woman. That's a covenant. A wedding is a ceremony that initiates the covenant. That's where the covenant is initiated at. So we have too many folks focusing on the wedding not enough focusing on the marriage, but a wedding is an important thing. And so the question is, how do we have a wedding that honors God? How do we have a wedding that brings glory to God? And in Song of Songs, chapter 3, we get some idea about that. So we're going to talk about what it means to have a wedding that honors God. And first of all, you have an outline in your bulletin. You can follow along. First of all, we see this. A wedding that honors God begins with a passion constrained by godly moral parameters. A wedding that honors God begins with a passion constrained by godly moral parameters. Look at Song of Songs 3, 1 through 5. Notice what it says. She has a dream. This is, and let me remind you, there are four main characters in the Song of Songs. There's the shepherd who loves, he's the male, the male lead in the story. He's in love with the young woman, the Shulamite. She's the second character. There's a chorus that appears from time to time. And from my perspective, Solomon appears as an idealized character, a figure, as we see in this passage today in just a few moments. But here in Song of Songs 3, 1 through 5, the young woman has a dream. She's dreaming about her lover. He is her dream lover. Notice what it says, verse 1. By night on my bed, 
I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but I could not find him. I will arise now and go about the city in the streets and in the broadways, and I will seek him, the one whom my soul loves. I sought him, but I could not find him. The watchmen that go around the city, they found me, to whom I said, Have you seen him, the one my soul loves? It was but a little while that I passed from them, and I found him, the one my soul loves. And I held him, and I would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her who conceived me into my mother's bedroom, is what she says. And then the chorus breaks in. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the rose and by the hinds of the field, that you do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases a godly wedding has parameters, begins with a passion constrained by parameters, more parameters established by God. We see several things in this passage. Remember, this is a dream. And so she's dreaming about when you are in love, you think about and you're consumed by this person during the day, and then at night you dream about them. You can't get them off your mind. And in fact, in dreams, everything is possible. And in her dreams, she's already married to him. So she's dreaming, oh, what it's going to be like when we're married. I'm so, I'm so excited. I can't wait until we're married. I can't wait until we're married. And she has this godly passion. It's a godly desire, and it is sensual in nature. One of the things I would point out to you about dreams is recurrent patterns of dreams are often uh, continuous with our concerns of day-to-day -day life. And so it's called the continuity hypothesis is what the psychologists called, say it. But what it basically means is the things you care about and things you worry about, that's what you dream about. She's dreaming about him, and it's sensual. Notice what it says in verse 1. By night on my bed, the word bed, there's a Hebrew word, mishkav. And it is a word that basically means uh, a bed for a husband and wife. And so she's dreaming about that. She wants to be with him. But it's under the lordship of Christ. Her passion is constrained by the lordship of Christ. I would remind you, 1 Corinthians 7, 9, the apostle Paul picks up on this theme. And he says, it is better to marry than to burn. And so one of the things that we want to learn from the Song of Songs and from the Bible is this. There's an appropriate place for sex. And that appropriate place for sex is in marriage. And so what I would say is I meet a lot of young couples that they're dating. And they're dating. And they're dating. For eons and eons. And they're struggling with sexual temptation for years. And my answer is, why not get married? I mean, honestly, why not get married? What are, at some point, you got to say, what are you waiting on? Bubba, what are you waiting on? And without affirming the moral message of everything that Beyonce says, gentlemen, at some point, you got to put a ring on it. The senior adults don't know who Beyonce is, and the young people are offended that I'm preaching. But so it's, <laughs> it's sensual, but it's constrained by godly parameters. There's nothing wrong with having a desire for someone, but God has given us a place for it. And four times in this passage, she refers to him in these five verses. She refers to him as the one my soul loves. That phrase, the, the one my soul loves, means that she's in love with the whole person. Yes, she has a passionate desire for him. Yes, she wants him. She wants to love him. But it's more than just a passion for his body. She wants him. She wants all there is of him. She wants to know him, all of him as a whole person. So it's sensual, but there's also security. She wants security. Look at verse 4. 
And she says, I found him, the one my soul loves, and I held him. That word for held there in the Hebrew means to grasp or to clutch. She's holding on to him, and she's not letting him go. She said, I found you. You're coming with me. You are mine. She's got him. Ladies, do you remember that? Before you got married, you found him, and you weren't going to let him go. You latched on to him. Do you remember that? A couple of months before your wedding, ladies, do you remember that? You found him. You held him. You weren't going to let him go. You said, God, I got him. I got him. I got him. And then about a year after you're married, you say, okay, God, you can take him now. I've, I've had him enough, right? But, um, but she had him, and she wants that security. This is what most people are really looking for in marriage. They want that sense of security that I have found someone that I can hold on to and is not going to leave me, that's going to go with me as Doug and Wilma talked about through the up times and through the down times, through the mountains and through the valleys, someone I can share life's joys and struggles with. It's sensual, but there's also security. But then notice what else, there's purity. Look at verse 5. This is a phrase that is repeated three times in the Song of Songs. Verse 5, the phrase that is repeated here is the moral underpinning and the moral foundation for the Song of Songs. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the rose and by the deer of the field, that you do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Uh, the NASB says right here, you can see on the screen, that you do not arouse or awaken my love until she pleases. I don't favor that translation. I like the ESV. I like the New, uh, the New International Version, the Holman Christian Standard, which really get it right. It really should be translated that you do not arouse or awaken love until it pleases, until the right time. This is talking about sexual desire. There is an appropriate place for sexual desire for be, to be awakened and to arouse, and that is in marriage, and that's the right place, and that's the right time. So she wants him. She's dreaming about him. It's sensual. She wants that sense of security. She's longing to find someone she can hold on to, and notice she says, I'm bringing him into my mother's bedroom. It's sensual. It's passionate. Don't let someone tell you God is against sex. God's not against sex. God is against the abuse of sex. And she's saying, I want him in the right place in the right time. But then this phrase repeated three times in the Song of Songs. It pops up. We saw it earlier a couple of weeks back in Song of Songs 2-7. We'll see it in a few weeks in Song of Songs 8-4. Do not arouse or awaken love until the right time. It is the moral underpinning. That phrase is central to the moral reasoning of the Song of Songs. And it is a warning of inappropriate sexual arousal. A wedding that honors God starts with and is constrained by godly parameters. Secondly, a wedding that honors God is a public celebration of the covenant of marriage. Look at Song of Songs 3, 6 through 11. This is one of the few places in the Bible where you see a wedding party. Here it is. Verse 6. Who is this coming out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense and all the powders of the merchant? Behold, it is Solomon on his bed. Sixty valiant men are about it. They all hold swords, being expert in war. Every man has his sword upon his thigh because of the fear in the night. King Solomon made himself a chariot of the wood of Lebanon. And it's really the phrase is sedan chair, which the NASB gets right. This means it's a palanquin. He's being carried along by men with those poles through a chair. King Solomon made it himself of the, chair, uh, the, the wood of Lebanon. He made its post of silver, the bottom of it gold, its covering of purple, the midst of it being paved with love. He said he put it together with love from the daughters of Jerusalem. 
Go forth, ye daughters of Jerusalem, of Zion. Behold, King Solomon with the crown, which his mother crowned him, and the day of his wedding, and the day of the gladness of his heart. This day of wedding was the day of gladness. A wedding that honors God is a public celebration. This is a wedding song. Song of Songs 3, 6 to 11 is a wedding song. And first of all, you see the groom enters. That's interesting. The focus is on the groom coming in. When we have a wedding today, the focus is on who? The bride. And she comes down the aisle. I remember when we got married, they opened up the doors and Lisa came out in her wedding dress. And it's a beautiful sight. The focus is on the bride. But here the focus is on the groom. The groom comes with his wedding party. And this is a royal wedding party. And he's being carried. A palanquin is one of those sedan chairs. It, it's got a pole through it. And men carrying it on the pole. And he's coming in. And the groom enters. And the focus is on the groom. By the way, this reminds me of another wedding that I'm going to someday. A marriage party that I'm going to. I'm going to a wedding someday. I'm going to a marriage party someday where the focus is going to be on the groom. Did you know that? Here in our culture, the focus is on the bride. But there's a marriage supper of the Lamb coming for those who've been saved. And at the marriage supper of the Lamb, we, we have that song, here comes the, right? Listen, for the church, the song is not, here comes the bride. For the church, its song is, here comes the groom. Someday Jesus is going to step out of glory and the trumpet's going to sound and all the evil and sin of this world and the wickedness that we have to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. Jesus is coming faster than a wheel turns on an axle. Jesus is coming faster than a twinkling of an eye. And there's going to be a marriage supper of the Lamb. And we're not going to sing, here comes the bride, because we're the bride, we're the church. We're going to sing, here comes the groom, the Lord Jesus Christ. Whoa, what a day that will be. When my Jesus, I shall say, when I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace. Oh, man. This passage reminds me of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The groom enters, but then it moves on. And in context, this is a marriage party. It's fascinating. It's one of the few times in the Bible that we actually see a, a wedding party. Jesus was at a wedding in John chapter 2. Jesus dignified the the beauty of marriage by coming to the wedding where he turned water into wine. But notice what happens at the end of this passage. They're crowned. Do you see this? Go forth, ye daughters of Zion. Behold, King Solomon with his crown on the day in which his mother crowned him. On the day of his wedding, the day of the gladness of his heart. The idea here is that on a wedding day, Every groom should be a king and every bride should be a queen. A wedding is a good thing. It is a joyous day. It should be a happy day. And when it's done God's way, a wedding is a celebratory time. Have you ever been to one of those weddings where half the people are kind of biting their fingernails? And go, I've been to weddings that uh, I've cringed. My wife, Lisa, was the, uh, a bridesmaid in multiple weddings while we were dating. And I'll never forget one of them. She came, the, the, I know the bride meant well, but Lisa's a lovely lady. But do some of you ladies have some bridesmaids dresses that you might wear on Halloween? You know what I'm talking about? So Lisa came out and she had this wreath of white flowers in her hair and this bright purple dress. I mean purple over the top. And these white hose. And she came out, and there was a scowl on her face at the wedding because she had that thing. And she walked down the aisle, and there was a song that was popular at the time by a group called Bananarama. She's got it. She's got it. There, I wanted to stand up and sing that because it looked like some pagan goddess coming out through there. I, and we used to have a closet full of wedding gowns until we had a yard sale. Amen? And they're gone. So... 
They sold them off to somewhere else. Um, or bridesmaids' gowns, I should say. Bridesmaids' gowns. So the idea is that um, weddings should be a day of joy, though. shouldn't be a day of horror. And when it's done God's way, it is a day of joy. Let me tell you two mistakes this preacher sees this generation making about weddings. And I'm talking about wedding ceremonies. Here's the first mistake this generation is making about weddings. And it has to do with that Song of Songs, chapter 3, verse 5. Do not arouse or awaken love until the right time. First mistake that this generation is making is they're living together and not getting married. The biggest untold secret in a Baptist church is how many couples are living together before they get married. Is we, have a, we used to have this don't ask, don't tell policy in the army. The biggest don't ask, don't tell policy we have in Baptist churches is we don't want to know. La, 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 la. Are they living together? La, 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 la. We don't want to know. Listen to me. Young men, if, you're a, if you say you're a Christian, listen, Christians don't shack up before they get married. We don't do that. You say, well, everybody else does it. Well, everybody else does a lot of things. But for Christians, and I've had young people tell me, well, I did my research and I looked up and the Bible doesn't say you have to have a wedding. Oh, really? When someone tells me that they've done their research, what that means is you Googled it, right? That's what just tell, go ahead and fess up. You Googled it. You went in on Google. And, and so what I found is a lot of young couples, what they're saying is when they say, well, I didn't find a wedding in the Bible. What they mean by that is they're looking for the old Anglican church service, which I still basically use, uh, this very famous wedding service that came out of the uh, Book of Common Prayer well over 400 years ago. It's quite beautiful, very biblical. And so what they're doing is they're looking for this. They're, they're looking for those statements. I, with this ring, I thee wed, I plot, I, old phrase, I plot thee my troth, I pledge thee my love, all these sort of things. And they don't find that in the Bible. And they say, oh, well, okay, then the wedding's not in the Bible. What you need to know is everything in that old Book of Common Prayer about wedding, though, comes right out of the Bible. And if you're going to do it God's way, you don't live together before you get married. That's the first mistake I see being made. Second mistake is this. Couples spending an inordinate amount of money. They are go families going into debt for weddings. And here's the problem. You ready? There's a lot of young couples, including Baptist couples, that see a wedding as a big drunken party. And they see what I do at the wedding ceremony as just a prelude to the real thing. The real deal is going down at the reception, which means we're going to have a kegger. So let me introduce you to Dr. Branch. I have a wedding policy. And there's several things in that wedding policy. One of them is I don't serve as a prelude for a kegger. Well, you know, I, I tie to this church and my kids go to this church. And somehow we have failed you if you think a wedding is supposed to be a drunken bash. And I see families going into debt, and I cannot tell you the couples I have seen that have spent thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars on a drunken party, and two years later they got divorced because they spent more time planning the wedding than they did getting ready for a marriage. And I love you. Listen, I understand you want a big wedding. A lot of you girls, you want a church wedding. I understand that. My mother... My mother had a church wedding by the grace of First Baptist Church, Ashland, Alabama. My mother never knew her daddy. On my mother's birth certificate, she passed away in 2008. On my mother's birth certificate, it says, Father's name, unknown. Found that after she died. And she grew up on the wrong side of the tracks, both literally and kind of uh, as a metaphor. She grew up in the wrong part of town. 
And she didn't have any money, and they were poor, and they were broke. And when my mom got engaged to my dad, she couldn't afford a wedding. And First Baptist Church, Ashland, Alabama, paid for my mom's wedding. They paid for her wedding gown and her reception and the bridesmaids and all that thing. They paid for everything. That church paid for my mother to have a wedding. I dream of doing that someday. I want to do that. I want to be a part of a church where we have a girl whose, whose dad has blazed and has left and is non-existent in her life, and she wants a church wedding. And we as a church come along and say, sweetheart, you want a church wedding, you're going to have it, and we're going to pay for it. And somebody right, oh, you shouldn't use the church money for that. Get off your bad attitude and your $20. I, I, I want to give a little girl a church wedding, and the church is supposed to come along beside I understand you want a church wedding. Lisa and I had a big wedding. So before we got married, I knew I was, I was set up. You know how I was set up? Let me tell you how I was set up. I was set up. Uh, about, uh, right about the time Lisa and I got engaged, I got called to preach. And she didn't go to the revival with me that night. Perry Neal was preaching. I came home from the revival and I came in, or didn't come home. I came to her parents' house. I drove to her house right after the revival. I'd gone forward and prayed and said, I think the Lord's called me to preach. I went to her house immediately after the revival service, and I sat down with her, and I started crying, telling her I thought the Lord wanted me to be a preacher. And she said, well, I need to tell you something now. When I was a 12-year-old girl, God told me that I was going to grow up and marry a pastor. I was set up because I started dating her. I didn't know I was going to be a preacher and a pastor. I didn't know that she knew she was going to be a pastor's wife. Do you understand what's happening here? I was, she knew, but I didn't know. I don't think that's fair. But uh, we had a church wedding, and her mom and dad said this. They said, you can have a big wedding, or we can have a small wedding at Marvin and Ruth's backyard. They're passed away now. Had a lovely pool, just immaculately landscaped. You, your mom and dad, us, a few close friends, a pastor, and we'll give you a cruise. And we said, no, 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 we want the big wedding. And we've got, the, we've got the VHS to prove it. Amen? Remember VHS? And I can't tell you how many times in the 30 years since then, you know what we said? I wish we'd taken the cruise. We should have taken the cruise. I understand you want a big wedding. But there's more to a wedding than just having a big party. I have a couple of things that I, I do and don't do uh, for weddings. I have a wedding policy. One of them is this. I don't marry believers to non-believers. 2 Corinthians 6, 13, uh, do not be unequally yoked. And I love you, and I want to set people up for success, and I don't marry believers to non-believers. Second thing is I require six weeks of premarital counseling that Lisa and I do together. I believe it's ministerial malpractice for a pastor to marry a couple without doing premarital counseling. And I also have one other condition. If you want me to do your wedding, Lisa is the wedding director. You say, why is that? Because I've dealt with Godzilla enough as wedding directors, okay? I, I just, I'm going with somebody that knows me and loves me. So I understand you want a wedding, but if you want to have a wedding that honors God, if you want a wedding that brings joy to the heart of the Father and that's more than just a big party, it's a public celebration of the covenant of marriage. And that really leads to the third point. What is a covenant? A wedding that honors God is built on the foundation of marriage is a covenant and not a contract. I have eight differences between a covenant and a contract for you. So I need to show you a passage of scripture before we do. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. Let me read this for you. The word of God says this. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, man and wife, and they were not ashamed. Okay, let me help you out here. I know the word covenant 
and it's not in verse 24. But I want you to circle two words. Circle the word leave and then circle the word cleave or be joined to. I think the ESV says cleave, joined to, united. Those two Hebrew words are covenant terms. They are used elsewhere in the Old Testament when God is making a covenant with Israel. So let me give you eight differences between a contract and a covenant. We'll go through them quickly. We live in a day and age where people see marriage as a contract. The Bible sees it as a covenant. First, contracts are temporary. Covenants are permanent. Uh, do you remember what uh, Doug and Wilma said? We never thought about getting divorced. We are in this for life. Listen carefully. Gentlemen, when you get married, you are getting sized for your tuxedo and your coffin at the same time. A covenant is for life. And I, I, we are in this, and we're going to work it out. When you have that sort of commitment, then you're not looking for a way to get out. You're looking for a way to work it out. So covenant is permanent. Secondly, contracts downplay forgiveness. Covenants emphasize forgiveness. A contract is basically assuming that if you do something wrong, then I can just dump you and move on. A covenant is quite different. In many ways, a, a contract assumes that, if, that you're not going to be a sinner. We're going to try to set this up. A covenant assumes quite differently. Why? Because the covenant of marriage is based on the covenant of salvation. And in salvation, God loved us, what? When we were yet sinners. And so when you get into a covenant, you understand, I'm marrying another sinner. They're going to be imperfect. They're going to be flawed. And I am going to forgive them. Now, this does not give carte blanche to a, a careless spouse to do anything they want to do, abusive and violent. That's not what we're talking about here. That's a different message. But what we are saying is that a covenant assumes that I'm going to have to forgive them at some point. Third, contracts don't emphasize virtue. Covenants do. Let me explain a contract. What do I mean? So if I get my new cell phone and I go to Sprint or T-Mobile or whoever it is, that provider doesn't really care if I'm a vulgar, vile, wicked person as long as I pay my bill every month. You understand? So my virtue is not important. But in a covenant, virtue is everything. Covenant is based on character. What kind of person are you? And I, I know we, we've talked in the Song of Songs about physical attraction but I cannot stress enough, you've got, as we go through that in love experience, we've got to make sure we're marrying a person of character because it's their character you've got to live with. Covenants emphasize virtue. Contracts don't require intimacy. Covenants do. If I got into business with Ryan and we started a business together, maybe selling cars or something, I mean, five o'clock on Friday afternoon, I say, I'll see you on Monday morning. We're gone. It doesn't require any intimacy. We're just in business together. And some people try to treat marriage that way. But no, a covenant assumes intimacy. That's why it says in Genesis 2.25, they were naked and not ashamed. It assumes intimacy, that you're sharing all of your life, not just part of your life with someone. Number five, contracts. Contracts put my need first. A covenant puts the needs of the relationship first. This is central. If you view marriage as a contract, what you're saying is, it's all about me and whatever helps me, whatever makes me happy comes first. But a covenant says it's not what's best for me that comes first. It's what's best for the relationship that comes first. Okay, guys, I got to talk to you and I as one man to another man about hot rod cars and motorcycles. And I, I'm into all that stuff. You understand? And there's been times in my marriage where I put my need, and I put that in scare quotes, for a new V8 engine in my pickup truck ahead of the good of the relationship. 
And all the wives said, yes, yes. Um, but what we have to learn as men is all those toys and play pretties we want come second. The relationship comes first. What's good for the relationship? What's good for the entire family? That comes first, not just what's good for me. Number six, contracts do not emphasize holiness. Covenants entail holiness. The word holiness means set apart. And so in a covenant, you're treating your spouse as someone set apart. They are holy to God. It's like this. And, and the way we treat wedding dresses is much like that. Some of you ladies here today, you've been married for years. Your wedding dress is sealed away in a vacuum-packed bag somewhere where the moss can't get to it. And you've got it in a closet as a special treasure and a very happy memory of your happy day when you felt like a queen. That's how it means to treat your spouse as holy. They're set apart. Uh, some, a lady wouldn't take that wedding dress and go work in the garden with it. No, you wouldn't do that. It's special. It's set apart. And your spouse, ladies and gentlemen, when you get married, your spouse is set apart as holy. You treat them as holy unto the Lord as, as a gift from God. Number seven, contracts assume a level of distrust. Covenants assume trust. Number eight, a contract is, individ, is very individualistic. A covenant implies a community of faith. And so a contract just says it's just about me and her. But a covenant, if you're a Christian, when you get married, I hope you understand, we're, we're all in this together as a body of believers. And it assumes that you want the covenant, the community of faith to affirm that covenant. Now, that doesn't mean the entire church has to be at your wedding. What it does mean is everybody knows that you're getting married and everybody knows that a covenant has been established. And we are accountable to the community of faith. We are accountable to each other for the way we govern and take care of and manage and steward our weddings. It implies a community of faith. Marriage is a covenant, not a contract. There's a term that's popped up in our culture. Well, let me just say a couple things before I talk about that. Let me just say, when, when there was a young man went to a wedding with his dad, and they did the unity candle. You know what the unity candle is? They have two candles. Bride has one. Groom has one. They take the two, and they light them, and then they blow out their individual candle. You know that? They, they light the one candle, the unity candle with their two candles, and then they blow out their each individual candles. And so this dad and his son were at a wedding, and uh, the couple did that, and they each blew out their candles and had the unity candle lit. And his dad leaned over to his son and said, you know what that means, don't you? And his son leaned over and said, yeah, no more old flames. That's a covenant. And we live in a day and age where the covenant of marriage is foreign to so many people. There is a term that's popped up in our culture, and I despise it. I do not like this term. It is a term that reflects a moral decay and a breakdown of understanding of sexual ethics and the covenant of marriage, and the term is baby daddy. Well, that's not my father. That's my child's baby daddy. That's not my husband. That's a baby daddy. That is a godless term. It is a term of a culture that is fractured. Men, God didn't call you to be a baby daddy. God called you to be a man, and a man understands that marriage is a covenant, and you treat a woman as holy and set apart, and you don't throw her around as a baby mama. Couples, listen to me. Listen to this preacher. I mentioned John chapter 2. 
There's a lot of people you can invite to your wedding. If you go back to Charles and Diana's wedding, their wedding list was amazing. Uh, all the rest of the royalty left around the world showed up and uh, Nancy Reagan came and all these elite stars and all the, the elite were there. And when you have a wedding, you're going to think about who you're going to invite to the wedding and you're going to invite family and friends and you're going to send out the cards. Listen carefully. There's one person you have got to invite to your wedding. It is Jesus Christ. You've got to invite Jesus to your wedding. I understand you want to have wonderful pictures and photos and put all this stuff on Facebook. But listen, if you don't have Jesus, you're headed for a crash. You've got to have Jesus. At the wedding of Cana, Jesus came. And that was all about the new covenant, the old wine and the new wine. And listen, you've got to have a new covenant with God before you ever get married to another sinner. Before you ever get married to another fallen human, you need to meet the sinless God-man, Jesus Christ. Because if all you got is one sinner looking at another sinner, all you're going to have is one big fight. But if you've got one sinner and a covenant with a perfect God, and you've got another sinner and a covenant with a perfect God, the, more you, the closer you get to God, the closer you're going to get to each other. Do you have Jesus in your life? Do you have Jesus in your home? Every head bowed, every eye closed. No one looking up, no one looking around. Listen carefully. If you're here and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you need to invite Christ into your life today. I'm inviting you to come forward. Shake my hand and tell me, Brother Allen, I want to be saved. And we have men and women here that will pray with you and share with you how you can know Christ. Perhaps you're here and you're a couple. And uh, Christ has not been the head of your home, and you'd like for somebody to pray for you. We can pray for you today. But whatever your decision, we're about to sing a song. And while they're singing, we're inviting you to come. Perhaps this is a God, church God has led you to, and you know it. You need to unite with this congregation as we try to reach Wichita for Jesus Christ. Whatever your decision, you come. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ for men and women and boys and girls to be saved. I pray that you draw them to yourself. I pray, dear God, that you change hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand to your feet while they're singing.